Ingiwala. Hello and welcome. Garoma nga bahagar nga jagun. Respect the Banjilang Nation. Ngaburungi nga ngaling nga jagun. The land nga yabugaya nga bunjang nga. Of pretty flowers nga yamburungi nga banjilaka. And pretty butterflies. Nimburungi nga bugurungi nga jaramba yawa nga apapungi. And the healing colors of the rainbow. Respect the Banjilang Nation. Welcome to part two of the Walkabout podcast from Yeagle Country, Yamba and McLean. Due to the large number of participants involved in the week-long project, the creation of the track Calling Into the Deep by the 380 crew at McLean High School and Desert P Media, this is an additional podcast to the series. We continue our walkabout accompanied by the voices of three very special Jaeger elders, Lenore Parker, Elizabeth Smith and Ron Heron, all of whom were actively involved in the Desert P Media projects, sharing and passing down their wisdom and knowledge in circle with youth at their feet, just like in the old days. There was a gentleness that embodied them as they engaged youth in topics and conversations they themselves had been passed down. It was an honor to witness. It restored a sense of pride in young and old and reminded us all of the important role elders play in any community. Recordings finished, the Desert P Media crew moved on to the next project, but the Yeagle mob couldn't wait to welcome them back when they returned a few months later as part of the roadshow component of the project. This is where the entire community is invited to gather and view the very first screening of the completed song and music video, Calling Into the Deep. The evening also included open discussions with the audience and panel talks around mental health and well-being. Anticipation was high and the 380 crew were in the front row, ready and waiting to see the product of all their hard work. Thank all you mob for coming down tonight. Firstly, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of this land that we gather on today. Thank you for having us. It's a big pleasure to work throughout the community and with your mob. My name's Janali. I'm just from down the river there where that fresh water meet the salt there, that Yeagle country there. It's a big pleasure to work along this song line so we've worked out from Muli Muli all the way down through Bayugu, down to Yeagle country and Yamba, and then we'll be finishing off in Fingal Heads. So tonight we're going to be screening some of the showcases that we've had and that we've been working with along this song line here, Clarence Riverway. Your way? Just sit back and enjoy. The day after the screening, energies were still high when we were invited to visit two very well-respected Jaeger elders in the community, both of whom had important roles in the creation of the song. Sisters Lenore Parker and Elizabeth Smith had a huge impact on the youth with their presence and vast knowledge of the Jaeger area and its original people. Both sisters are committed to supporting their community and speak about the values, respect and spirit that connects them and their young people to culture. It begins with a prayer from Lenore Parker, a priest in the Anglican Church of Australia, a rather unique role for an Indigenous woman to occupy. God of holy dreaming, great creator spirit, from the dawn of creation, you have given your children the good things of Mother Earth. You spoke and the gum tree grew in the vast desert and dense forest, and in cities at the water's edge, creation sings your praise. Your presence endures as the rock at the heart of our land. When Jesus hung on the tree, you heard the cries of all your people and became one with your wounded ones, the convicts, the hunted, and the dispossessed. The sunrise of your sun coloured the earth anew and bathed it in glorious hope. In Jesus, we have been reconciled to you and to your whole creation. Lead us on, Great Spirit, and gather us from the four corners of the earth and enable us to walk together 
in trust from the hurt and shame of the past into the new day which has dawned in Jesus Christ. Amen. Hi, <laughs> my name is Lenore, Lenore Parker, and I'm a priest in the Anglican Church of Australia. I'm a Jaeger woman. I live on Jaeger country with my families. The prayer that you just received is a thanksgiving prayer for, for Australia. Is it quite an unusual position for a Jaeger woman to hold within the Anglican Church? <laughs> well, I'm the only one. <laughs> I mean, here in this diocese, in the Diocese of Grafton, yeah. So this prayer was written in 1994. That was when we were meeting with a National Aboriginal Anglican Council, meeting for the first time with, for me, meeting with the traditional people of this ancient land in Darwin. So it came about after listening to the stories and to how our people up there, the traditional people, how they worshipped their God. And then when we went to a Sunday service in the cathedral, when we opened the old prayer book for Australia, their God wasn't represented. The old people that I was talking to up there, their God wasn't represented. So the spirit within me groaned. And so I came back and I shared that story with the others and I said, how can we become the Anglican Church of Australia if we have not listened and respected the spirituality of the first peoples of this ancient land? My tongue became the writer or the author of this prayer because it was the spirit, spirit that gave me the words and my colleague, he was the scribe who wrote the words after I shared the story. My name is Elizabeth Smith. We're in McLean on Yagel traditional land. I'm a, an elder, a Yagel woman, a traditional Yagel woman. Can I ask you what connects you to country? The spirits. The spirit within the land and our ancestors. I feel that they guide me. They know where I go, what I do, but it's the spirit they lead me to, to these areas. They lead me to, to work. They work with me. The spirituality is there and it's about connecting. It's about connecting and having identity and having that identity very strong and know where you come from. And so the spirit, we call it the ancient spirit, but the spirit, the ancient dream time, the old dreaming and the new dreaming. So it is the one spirit that we talk about and that connects us all to all of his creation, to the land, the rivers, the oceans, the animals and to each other. We're here as part of the Desert Pea Media Project and a word that continually comes up is connection, isn't it? Yes. Because with the spirit, there is no separation from the spirit. The spirit is connected to us, to all living things, to the land, the rivers, the trees, the oceans. And we cannot separate the sacredness of our land, our rivers, our country, our creation. Because these are all given gifts to us. They were given to all the people of Australia by the great creator spirit himself. Doing a lot of work with the children at the high school, what do you think um, is the main cause of disconnection within them to their own identities these days? I think it's culture. I think a lot of them don't know their identity. I think also, but this talking to the youth, talking to them, and don't be judgmental, accept who they are. But talk to them about walking the road with them, so to speak, taking them under your wing and guiding them and loving them, loving them for who they are and look after them and cherish, cherish each and every one of them because they are so important. They are, you know, leaders of tomorrow. They've got to have a voice. The youth must have a voice and they need to express their voice and express how they feel. 
How do you maintain a connection to culture with the youth in particular? I cannot be anyone else. I have to be who I am. And so the kids know me and what I represent and I represent them but of what my beliefs are. So I come with a deep respect and a deep listening to whoever I meet and share with them the story within me of what I need to share with them or with anyone who, who I am meeting with. We all got to share a, a rather large story together last night as we watched the unveiling of the most recent song that we've made together. How did it make you feel to be, uh, to be there last night and to be a part of the roadshow? After hearing and watching the screen, it took me back to when we had spoken, where the words were being written and spoken. It took me to a, a deeper, deeper place where I just felt the pride because the kids, they sang it with great gusto. They were so proud. And it was as if they were thanking us for their songs that they, they heard through us. Our tongue, as we share our stories, the tongue becomes the author of whatever we produce. Last night, once again, I would say, I think with everyone else and with the kids watching it for the first time, so this great elation where all the kids wanted to sit in the front and see everything ha happening because they were there and they were a part of it. So it was, I think, all these mixed emotions that were there. And then after leaving that place and coming home and then, then reflecting on it and just thinking and thanking God for the two words that I got this morning and they were empowerment. The kids were empowered to share their stories and also the other one was having this self-belief that they can do anything. They don't have to hide anymore like we used to hide because we were too shy. But no, here they were. They were coming up strong and healthy as a group of beautiful young kids. Is there anything you'd like to say to Desert P Media? Well, <laughs> I mean, you've just blown us away every time you come here. And I am taken aback with Toby and all the skills of all the team as we share our stories and you write the stories. You put the words on the page with the kids' help, with everyone else's, the whole community who were gathered there at the time. You are there putting words in because it is not Desert P Media who is writing the words. These are the words from the people who've shared the stories and with the children. And they go and they, they choose words from out of that. What are some of the words that you would like written? You cannot get anything like this coming forward unless you yourself feel the passion within you to bring the truth out in whatever form of story or song that you are going to present to the people. So to Desert P Media, I say thank you and I know it is a privilege for you to be working in this area, as it is a privilege and an honour for us to share our stories so that our precious young children can learn and grow. What kinds of differences have you noticed in the children from you know, the beginnings of these projects a couple of years ago now to how they are now? Well, I think they're a lot stronger. They want to know they're proud and they're proud of who they are. And being with the wider community as well, they're proud of who they are. I don't hear the word shame anymore. For years I haven't heard shame. So I thought, wow, isn't that wonderful? Because you never hear, never hear it anymore. Because you don't need to be ashamed. There's nothing to be ashamed of. And we watched all together the release, the first showing oh, of wow. the song last night. How did that make you feel? Well, it's proud. It's invigorating. It makes you want to shout and say, wow. Go on, shout. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. And um, I think it's wonderful with the youth to empower these youth. And my little grandson, who's nine, he said, Nan. Oh, Nan. He said, this is fantastic. So he was really, the smile on his face was just, it was beautiful. 
Well, it's about empowering them for education and go on and do the best you can. And if you had a message to give to the crew at Desert P, was there anything that you'd like to say to them? I'm so very proud of them because they're shining the light. The darkness has gone now. It's a light. We let the dark go. It's been there for far too long. And now it's the light and it's about sharing. The song lines and the storylines, it's not in the darkness anymore. So I would like to give to you, all the listeners out there, this comes with all our love from the Yagel people. Rivers and rivers of love and oceans of God's divine mercy. I would now like to give you a blessing from us, the Yagel people. Magandaya, Abba, Baba Father, the first great ancestral being, with Nyala Gaywan, the bright evening star, the mother, and with their son Nyalagam, the warrior, the bright morning star, watch over you and guide you and lead you in all that you do. Blessings, my friends. Here is that track they made, Calling Into the Deep, by the 380 crew from McLean High School. As we continue on our walkabout, we'll meet another influential elder, Ron Heron, who sat quietly each day and observed the children connect deeper to one another and their culture, instilling a sense of pride that some had never felt before. 
From shame to game, the changes were obvious, but I was interested to discover more about this quietly spoken, silver-haired man, and by the second day, we were becoming better acquainted. I learned he had been a professor at a university in northern New South Wales, had written books, and had a great deal to share about bush medicine, traditional healing methods, and spiritual practices, all of which he gave me permission to share. So, are you ready to meet Yegel Elder Ron Heron? Uncle Ron is a Yegel Elder and senior knowledge holder who lives in Yamba. He has a lifetime of knowledge of the local area. Uncle Ron has an associate diploma in Aboriginal studies and degrees from the ANU in archaeology and anthropology. He was also awarded a Doctor of Letters from Macquarie University. In 2018, Uncle Ron's Yagel story, Fishing with Dolphins, was shortlisted in the Long Way Home short story competition. I have Uncle Ron Heron sitting here with me, and those words came out of the back of this year's stories from the Clarence Valley. Uncle Ron, tell us a little bit about this book and your publication in it. One of the ladies that's involved with this book asked me was I interested in putting a story in this book. So I said, well, yes. I thought it was really a good thing of it, you know, to ask me. So I said, yes, I'd like to put a story in that book. Splitting the Storm would be ideal, you know, for this year's book. Last year was Fishing with Dolphins, but this one uh, is also a good book mainly because the Aboriginal people in tribal times used to use both these practices in their lifetime, you know. So splitting the storm, it starts with the words, I've seen this story happen several times among our old people. What have you seen, Uncle Ron? Well, I've actually seen them splitting the storm, which was an eye-opener, you know, for the very first time for me. I really got a lot out of it, you know, and I was amazed with it. So um, I decided to tell a story then. Can you tell a little bit of the story of how somebody or who it was that actually split the storm? It was my grandfather, my mum's father. He got up one day, messed around the house, you know, here and there and whatever. And later on then in the day, this bad storm suddenly appeared from the south and it was coming up towards the north and it usually followed the beaches along the way. As it got closer and closer, it looked worse, you know, and bad. It was going to be a terrible storm. So he woke his wife up. She was lying down and having a rest and he told her then to come and have a look at the storm. And together, both of them were really terrified with what they had seen or could see. They said, we'll have to do something about this storm. So they began to speak in a lingo and sing out loud in a lingo. When I realised what they were singing out to, they were singing out to their forefathers before them, like their grandparents, their parents, old people that went on before them passed on long before their time. They were singing out to those people to protect them from this bad storm. And they saw me there, they said, look, run around to all these huts and have a look at their wood heaps. You're bound to find an axe in the wood heap, one of their wood heaps. So I ran around straight away and I finally found the axe, a steel axe and I dragged it back to my grandfather and I handed it to him and him and his wife were still talking in their lingo in a panicky way about the storm. When I came with the axe and gave it to my grandfather, he grabbed the axe and he spoke out and he chopped where the storm was coming down into the ground and he left it there then and still talking in the lingo the storm, when you watch the storm, the storm was still coming, but it slowly began to split. One half was going out to sea, 
and the other half was going inland. So the storm was actually split in two. Where we was, we only had a little bit of rain. And of course, the Aboriginal community was in front of the storm and in front of Yamba, the township. So that also meant they only, they protected themselves, but they also protected Yamba. But we've got a little bit of the rain, enough to fill the 44 gallon drums that they had to collect the rainwater, see? For their tea, you know, and the bath little ones in it. That's what splitting the storm was all about. And to see this done for the very first time was a real eye-opener. But I've seen it done lots of times now. I've seen it done a couple of times by my grandfather and a couple of times by his eldest son, whose name was Uncle Billo. he done that lots of times. And it says, that's a true story I witnessed. This all happened in Aboriginal ways. Does it take a certain type of person to be able to do that? No. In most communities it is done, but there are different ways of performing it. But that was the way of my Jaeger people. They done it that way. There's also different ways of holding your hand up and doing it that way and singing out in a certain way to those people. Before the axe, it used to be a stone axe. That was done in that way all those years, you know, in the Yagal area. There are so many beautiful stories that we could sit and, and yarn about today, but we've chosen a few. I think the one that we'll start with is something that we were listening to you talking about in a little circle at Angauri a couple of days ago, and that was the tea tree memories. The memories, the stories, the thoughts that come up when you see a tea tree or pick up a piece of tea tree. Yeah, whenever I see a tea tree, I always think of, well, I think of many things, but usually the leaves on a tea tree that were often used in the Yagel area I imagine it would have been used elsewhere, but in the Yagel area, it was often used for mainly the young, younger people. Mainly used for the boys, the young boys that always seemed to be in the kitchen or in the way of adults around the house, in the way of mum's apron strings, you know, as we call it now. But even in the olden days, when they used to be, say, Humpies here, there, everywhere. The kids used to be young and a bit on the spoiled side, you know. Used to get whatever they wanted, you know, or demand and get it when they were young. But it was time that often stood out. It's time for these young people to be initiated, to make them into young adults, you know, at a very younger age. These young boys were probably between the ages of, say, eight and nine, you know, that age group, or even ten. It all depends on the size of the child. The parents would decide we'd better send this young boy off to be initiated for his very first time. And during this stage, they'd arrange for him to go to the special initiation ceremonies once a year but a certain time of the year when the tea tree was more potent, more stronger in its smell. It was arranged then for a number of different communities to send their representatives like the young boys. There might be about two or three boys sent from Broomzed to that ceremony at McLean. There might be another two or three boys that would be probably sent from McLean to that same ceremony, same as Ashby. They'd be sent there as well, or Aluka. You had several different communities will send a number of children along for the ceremony. And at the ceremony, part of the ordeal would be the young boys would have their nose pierced. They'd have a hole made in their nose 
and the leaf from the tea trees would be bent over and folded up and put in that hole in their nose. And they'd keep that in their nose for about two days at the most. And they'd learn how to replace it and put another one in the next time, next day. They were able to do this by themselves, you know, carefully put it in and carefully take it out. When you look at the tea tree, certain times of the, when they used to crack the leaves, squeezing it through that hole, they would also get the scent out from the leaf, which is a scent and quite strong at certain times of the year. The smell of that would clear their chest up and also their nasal capacities. Those areas would be cleared by the scent of that tea tree. That would be enough to get away from mum's apron strings and when they'd finished that ceremony they would be sent to live in their single man's hut. They were with their older brothers or younger uncles who would also teach them then how to track animals, how to make artifacts. So they'd grow up then, it was like their first day at school. They'd learn all these new things that they should know and they would um, learn all about everything to do with the culture, like nature, also what the flowers meant on those trees. They also meant when the mullets were travelling, you know, when they, they were all out, meant that the mullets were travelling, the tea tree where the leaf comes off also represented the tea tree bark, which is often used as plates, sometimes a ground cover, sometimes sheets, you know, what we use today, when they had hunting or whatever, they'd also use them for toilet paper if they had to. They'd use them for everything and they'd learn all this after they had that leaf, you know, and had their nose pierced. They'd learn a lot of things. When the next time they'd bump in to their parents or meet their parents, it was very shy. They wouldn't be as active as they once were when they were young. They'd be more aware of adultness, you know, and they'd be very shy of this. They'd look usually the other way or look down at the ground and not look their parents straight in the eye like they would when they were littler. And they was more grown up, you know. They were taught all these things by a lot of the older boys, you know, that'd been before them years ago. As they, those boys become a bit older, say, 12, 13, that age group, they're taught then things that they should know at that age. For instance, how to clean a porcupine, how to clean a kangaroo, you know? How to get rid of all their guts, things like that. How to get rid of all the air. They'd singe certain types of food on a fire, you know? And then later, then once an animal was singed, they would pull it off the fire, wait the fire down until there's lots of red cows, then they would grill the animal or whatever on that. These all happen at certain ages. So it meant, just like school is today, you know, certain ages or certain primary school, there's preschool and there's high school, the fully initiated people then went on to learn the important things, you know like how to stop the storm, you know, or how to split the storm. How to do that? They will come at a certain age group. You can't learn that as a young person, you know, unless uh, you're something special, you know, and you're brought up that way. A lot of people at a certain age can do those things, but they don't know how unless they reach that particular age. Or in our words is, attend that particular initiation ceremony, which only is for that certain age group. And you have certain sorts of um, initiations too. That means when you go to those initiations, you're able to get married, you know? You're able to have a wife and children. But then if you want a second wife, you've got to get older again. You don't get rid of the first wife, you still keep it because she teaches the new wife how to do a lot of things that she should know. So it's not uh, looking out 
people is saying, oh, well, he only wants another girlfriend, you know, because his first wife is getting on in age. She can't cook like she used to, you know, or do things that a younger person. So reflecting on the tea tree memories and the story, tea tree, of course, as we know, is very therapeutic and a medicine and very healing. And this brings me to the second story, which I'm really interested in, which has somehow has a, a funny little twist to it. It's about a hospital visit and the clever man. It's entitled Clever Man on Alagandi Island. This story told by A.E. Cameron, the manager under the Aborigines Protection Board and as a teacher under the Department of Education, Mr. Cameron is manager and teacher to the Aboriginal station on Alagandi Island. Perhaps the funniest story Mr. Cameron has to tell of the clash of the customs of two races, however, is that of Rosie, the full-blooded Aboriginal of advanced age, who became sick and was taken to a well-known doctor in McLean, who stated that she had symptoms suggesting gallstones. He prescribed the usual remedies and Rosie returned to the station. After some time, she appeared before the manager, sprightly, brisk and cheerful, evidently restored completely to her natural state of health. Questioned, she admitted that she was quite well again thanks to the treatment. Thanks to Dr. Mm, suggested Mr. Cameron, gratified at the doctor's skill. No, said Rosie emphatically. It was not due to doctor, but to the magic of an Aboriginal medicine man who had paid a visit and had used his spells to remove the gallstone. Pressed for details, she said the gallstone had been sucked from her body by Mick, the medicine man, at the end of two hours of applying his lips to the afflicted part. Nothing would convince her that the medicine man was fake, for this was the traditional tribal method. The doctor in McLean has never received from her the credit of his cure, while the fame of Mick, the medicine man, has become great in the land. That was from the Daily Examiner on the 13th of the 6th, 1963. The medicine man or woman was also known as being clever and could do many other things. Uncle Ron, do you remember a medicine man from your childhood or, or those kinds of treatments? Some of those were usually whispered when we were still close you know, to some of the adults. So, in actual fact, we weren't supposed to know about them. But sometimes you couldn't help overhearing some of the stories. But later in life, you did experience a lot of things. So like the splitting of the storm, you know? Things like that, that only adult people performed them. So we knew about those sorts of things, but we weren't allowed to practice them until we got older. And what about even talking about them and even someone like me, you know, reading that story now, does it still stand that way that these kinds of stories are not for everyone? Some of the stories, if you were to tell a special story to a certain family member, they might get very disruptive over that story, you know. It might cause them mental stress and it has happened because I used to be a lecturer at the university at Lismore. And one of the students I had, I used to tell a couple of stories, and one of the stories really upset him very much, to a particular state where I wasn't permitted to tell him any more about those stories, see? Or stories like that, or information like that at all. I found it very hard because in my profession, a lot of those stories has to be told, but not to everyone. To, you know, I learned that. Some people weren't meant to hear those stories here. Some of the other very interesting stories, and one that I think is really beautiful and relates very closely to the project that we're working on here with Desert P Media, which is all about well-being and opening up conversation about mental health and what to do if you're in a place that's not so good, if you're experiencing some kind of stress or mental stress. It's your mother's sister's fishing story. Would you like to share that again? Yeah. 
My mother had a sister. Her name was Auntie Della. And um, Auntie Della, she had 14 children. Very pleasant, you know, to be with or to be around. The same as her children, too, once you got to know them. They were quite nice. So anyway, me and my sister felt very sorry for Auntie Della. She seemed to be always babysitting her children's children, like her grandchildren. So we used to feel sorry for her all the time. So every now and again, we used to take care from Yamba up to McLean to um, Townsend, where my sister lives. So she used to have the odd night with my sister. And then um, of an evening, we used to go fishing out at the um, stone quarry. When we used to take a fishing, we had fold-up chairs and plenty of bait, you know, worms and that, fresh worms, a couple of fishing rods and a couple of hand lines, you know, that you throw out and hold in a, in a bottle. And my aunt dad preferred the hand lines that you roll up on a bottle. And when you throw them out, you would hold a bottle, you know, so the line and the bait would go out into the river. Up at the quarry where we used to go fishing, it's very wide there, about a mile wide. We had a lot of sea breeze, you know, that blow on the, off the river onto the embankment. We used to always experience a tidal drift with low tide or high tide. We used to take Aunt Ella fishing now, because we knew she loved the fishing. And it was their way of getting away from all the little mysterious ones, you know to have a good time with a few adults who liked fishing. Anyway, one day I decided to ask her, I said, how come you like fishing, you know? She said, well, I enjoy myself. She said, when I throw the line out, I'm throwing away all my problems and worries, you know, out there in the deep to get rid of them. That breeze from the river helps to get rid of them also, you know, from her, and to calm her down and to make her feel relaxed. What would also happen was the dolphins would swim by, you know, a few minutes up the river, a few minutes later on down the river past where we were fishing. And these dolphins were also her father's totem. So she'd feel at home and relaxed when that would happen. I never forget it, you know, um, what she said. It was like she was throwing away her problems and the breeze would come, come in, you know, on her and the dolphins would finish it off. Her father's totem would make her feel really at home, you know, and calm down. And it really does connect with what we've spoken about throughout this whole week here with Desert P the disconnection and, and some of the reasons perhaps that are creating disconnection and that's the lack of connection to country and things like what you just described in, in this little story, they're not written anywhere, they're not a, a prescription to make yourself well, they're not a fishing pill, it's just a simple act of being outdoors and, and doing something like that, isn't it? Mm, yeah, yeah, it really works well. It has always worked with our culture that way, to find something to do. And it has always been done before by the Jagger people, to do something they've always done. We've just heard a story about how the beautiful act of fishing becomes so healing. And that brings me to another story, which is hopping fish, which I think is, is a little bit of a funny story because um, Whoever decides to go out hopping fish comes in pretty wet, don't they? Yeah, especially the boat, you know, is a leaky boat. There's always a few inches of water here or there, you know, in the boat. When we used to go hopping, well, I first went hopping with my brother-in-law. He was the one that stood in the front. Sometime he sat at the back and he held a lantern over the edge of the um, boat some of the light would shine on the embankment, but also not a lot, you know? Then the person who sat at the front would also keep an eye out for the limbs. If a tree had blown over 
into the water, you'd have to go out and around that limb or that branch. If you sat in the middle, you were really a good rower. You know, you knew all about rowing about. Fast too. My brother-in-law, his younger brother was a good rower and fit and healthy, you know. He did most of the rowing. I sat in the front and my brother-in-law, his name was Roderick, he would sit at the back with a lantern and the mullet would swim out from the, the embankment and jump into the boat. Sometimes they'd jump over the boat and keep going. So when they jump, they'd also hit you in the face or chest, all over the body. If they fell into the boat, they'd splash, you know, and kick their tails all the time. That means you'd be wringing wet with water if there's water in the boat. We might go one night or two nights in a row to make sure a lot of people would have fresh fish. Usually the mullets were the ones that we'd catch. We'd end up with a, at least a half a bag full, sometimes a couple of bucket full. Sometimes then another family might go up on a couple of other nights, you know, and give us a bit of a spell. We didn't have no electricity on the island. There's no TV or whatever to watch. So if you did go fishing or hopping, at least you got out the house, you know, and got a little bit away from the others. We often went hopping. There was no fridge or no electricity, uh, no running water even on the island. A lot of the stuff we used to get ourselves in buckets and the island next to it has a hose that goes on the bottom of the river and is connected on the island, you know. And you just mentioned that there were no fridges, so when you got a big haul of fish, you, were you excited about that and wanted to go out and do it again? There was no reason to go out and do it again, was there? Because no. you can't hold the fish anywhere. That was it. So there's no electricity. They used to cook up all the fish, probably in the next day or so at the most. Then, say, a few days later, someone else would go up and, you know, we might go up and again. So we're talking about some of the, the old traditions and how you used to catch fish and we've heard stories of, of clever men and splitting storms and all sorts. But there's a lot of traditions that are also carried on, not necessarily through story, but when you arrive at a place, there's a lot of sites that are not named or labelled or don't have signage to say what used to be there. But there are some very special sites and some real traditions that go with those sites. For example, we were down at Angauri Point a couple of days ago filming something and the night was drawing in and there were a lot of stories that came out of what happened and what had happened at night and actually the camps that were on that land. Did you want to talk a bit about the, the sacred sites? Uh, well, that particular one, that was a, usually a campsite that used to be in traditional times. Of course, it wasn't all that far from fresh water, you know, which a lot of those campsites were not that far from fresh water. So you could have a drink of water or take water from there back to the community, see, in traditional times. Those communities, uh, even now, you can't sleep even in the car. You try to have a sleep in the car if someone's down the beach not that far away, fishing. They, the old people would often say to us younger ones, you won't get much sleep there, why? They will say, well that used to be an Aboriginal community site, you know. So all deceased people used to live there, see. And they used to often say, the old people, if you do want to sleep, you take your blanket and you go down to the dry sand on the beach and you can sleep there, and you won't be disturbed, you know? So you can sleep all you like down there. Community area, site, you can't sleep there, see? You probably would, if you made a big fire, you know? You could camp next to the fire. See, these days now, you can't build fires like you used to years ago, like when I was young. If our uncles or grandfather 
ran us not in the car, they knew we'd be down on the beach, see, not far. Why? Why would you not have a good sleep? Was that ever explained to you as a child? I mean, I know you know now, but were the reasons explained? Sort of. See, we never went out fishing as young kids. When we did go, it was usually as an adult or teenage years. So we were at that stage where we did know, or we were told by a lot of older people, not to expect to lie down and have a sleep there in the car because those people that lived there before would come there to torment you and wake you up. So if you weren't asleep, you had no choice but to go down to the beach. All of these beautiful stories, and I'm sure there are literally thousands and thousands more that you've lived through yourself and experienced and are now at a, a stage of, of such openness and sharing and, and wanting to share them, which is why you're part of this project as well with Desert P. But you have a, a lot of literature here that you've written. You also have a book in the Canberra Institute of Aboriginal Studies, and it's in quite a special section, isn't it? Can you tell us what that book is and, and where it can be found? Yeah, well, there's two books I've got that's not on me at the moment. One is in the Institute of Aboriginal Studies in Canberra. It is put in a section of that library called the Rare Books section. You can read about it being there, but not of the particular story. You can't get the book either, unless I give permission, see? But in the, the ANU, University, Canberra, in that library, there's also another copy of that book in there, see? That book happened to be my thesis that I wrote. So um, it's probably be allowed for certain people to um, have a look at that thesis, you know? And there are people who are writing the same sorts of things that I've written about, but to do with their area that be made available, you know. But in the Institute, I do know of Aboriginal studies, they won't be given out to anyone unless they really close relation, you know, and I have to prove it. You have to say yes. It's interesting because I've always been fascinated with Indigenous culture of Australia and wanted to find out more and never known how that's actually possible. And I totally respect that these are your stories. These are the stories of the indigenous people of this land and they belong to you. They don't belong to just anybody. At the same time, do you feel that maybe they slowly, slowly by choice need to be shared with the greater population so that the distance between can kind of somehow be bridged or or begin to be. Do you think that the stories could be a part of people becoming closer? Do you think that they may be, you know, used or abused sort of in the, in the way that your ancestors were or, or the culture itself has been? Yeah, how do you, you feel about that? I think some particular stories should be used or allowed to be used by non-Aboriginal people, but not every story. You know, some stories are only meant to be passed on to Aboriginal people or other Aboriginal elders from the same sex as say that I think they should know that story, see? Yeah, or whatever parts of the culture they should know about as well. But not every part of it should be passed on. But it also happens to be, say, 20 years time, you know, someone who might be passed on by other people, those stories, it's up to them then to decide whether they should pass on. But at the moment, I feel not all of the stories should be passed on. I think that's why we, we treasure the ones that we can and the learnings and the understanding that we get from, from storytelling just sitting here with you and going through these few stories that we chose because they're 
available to us. I feel very honored and, and very blessed to hear these words, you know, from yourself, from Uncle Ron. So thank you so much for sharing. Mm, that's fine. How comfortable are you with it, knowing that this culture is your legacy that you have to keep alive for these fellas? Really comfortable to learn about your culture, to learn more for every day. What does it mean to you guys being here, listening to Uncle Ron? We're not sitting there on the phone, you know, wasting our times playing or playing video games. We're out on country, we're, in, we're outside, we're in nature. We're getting the fresh air. We're not stuck in a room somewhere. Really good to like being country, feeling the land, and listening to elders talk about their country and our country, to learn more. Pass that on to my young ones in the future. Well, I've got you guys here. Turn your TVs off, do you know what I'm talking about? Close your eyes. Have a listen to what's on country. Listen to what's around you. You can hear my voice talking. But listen, hear the birds, hear the beach, you can hear the wind, hear that little squeaky cricket again. But can you hear that low hum? It's blowing in them trees and that breeze. Once you find that, you know that you're comfortable in this country. You feel calm? So I'm glad you guys are taking the time to listen to what is in there, but mainly there and there. They're the main two things that Uncle Ron has, and plenty of. A lot of you and a lot of you. So you got any more stories, Ron? Oh, I got lots of stories. <laughs> It's only the beginning. There's lots and lots of stories that you younger ones should know. You know, all of you. And I'm not the only one. There's a lot of other older people too that are willing to pass on, you know, a lot of the knowledge that they possess as well. This podcast is dedicated to the Yeagle elders, Lenore Parker, Elizabeth Smith, and Ron Heron, who were each open to sharing a part of themselves while I worked alongside Desert P Media, collecting interviews and stories from the participants to capture the people behind the song, calling into the deep, and spend time with this awesome mob. If you'd like to hear more from the Walkabout series, head to the Walkabout Facebook page where you can find photos and videos alongside links to a collection of these podcasts by Chop Suey Roaming Radio on SoundCloud. You can also check out and tune in to Byron Bay's local community radio station, bayfm.org. View almost 20 years worth of work from Desert P Media, including this track calling into the deep by the 380 crew, at desertpmedia.com. Walkabout was made possible with the assistance of the Community Broadcast Foundation, cbf.org. Thanks so much for listening and get ready for the next Walkabout in Wayable Country, Bayugal, about 75 kilometres northwest of Grafton in northern New South Wales. Until then, Bougain Bay. Thanks for listening. <laughs>